Hey, I think that probably all of us have experienced favoritism of one sort sometime in our lives. We, you know, someone saves us a seat somewhere or, or lets us cut up in the line, you know, butt up in the line somewhere. Everybody's at the back say, hey, to the back of the line. What's the deal there? You know, we've experienced that kind of favoritism thing, right? We've experienced the favoritism that is sort of fun and get a good deal on a, an item somewhere because you know somebody But then there's bad favoritism. Maybe all of it's bad. But it's especially bad within the family or within a group. The reason, of course, primarily is because favoritism is about benefiting ourselves. And it undermines, really, and downgrades everything that Jesus is trying to do in your life. Like Paul, James encountered something in his church that he just didn't like. It's the issue of favoritism. And he said in a line, don't do it. Pretty simple to understand. Pretty straightforward. But then he spent a good deal of time writing about it and explaining why it's a bad, bad thing. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter 2 this morning. The issue is favoritism. By the way, it sets us up for wrong judgment, evil judgment, sin, nasty judgment towards ourselves, lack of mercy, and a whole other heap of bad stuff. Father, your word is open before us. This message was not only picked up in James, but it's picked up throughout the scriptures. This is significant to your heart. This really matters. It really matters to you, Lord, how we treat each other. I know that. We know that. But sometimes, Father, we, we don't know where the, where the boundaries are. We don't know how extreme the issue really is. And so, Lord, I pray as we bear down now into your word that the Spirit of God will have free reign in our hearts because we surely need the work of Jesus in our life. And Lord, I don't think any one of us will escape uh, this section without you prodding and poking into the business of our lives. And that's okay, we welcome that. Because we know, Lord, that it is imperative that we, uh, and we um, cooperate with the work you want to do in our lives. And we want to do that, Lord. We want to, please, Lord. We want in the singing of the songs, Jesus is Lord. Uh, our hope is in you. You are the one. The power of your love is changing us. All of that stuff, Lord. It's not going to happen if we just stare at the word of God and aren't doers of it. So, Father, we want to cooperate with what we were singing and what the Spirit of God wants to do in our lives today. So bless this word to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is his brother writing. Don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and A poor man in shabby or schlunky clothes also comes in. 
If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? And are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering or, better translation, blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to Anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment, exclamation mark. Praise the Lord. Is that not the only way you can respond to that last statement that comes in that section? That mercy has triumphed over judgment on our behalf. Can you not say, praise God, thank you for that. Because if if mercy had not triumphed over judgment, where would we be? We would not be gathered here this morning. We would not be uh, together celebrating the table of our Lord together. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. Well, with that as a backdrop, let's talk a little bit here about these things. Um, James seemed to encounter in his church the same thing that Paul noticed in the church in Corinth. I guess it's somewhat endemic to church itself. This idea of mistreating each other, discrimination, uh, division, favoritism. Now, by the way, in James' world, the issue wasn't as clean in terms of rich versus poor as maybe we would like to sort of see it, uh, and maybe as we would even understand it. And by the way, when we're trying to compare the cultures, there is very, there's, there's a There's a great gap between our culture and their culture, although there are some great similarities. For instance, they didn't really have a massive middle class like we have. We have, in our culture, we have this this general middle class of people. In in James' world, the time of the early Roman times, there there were the rich and the poor, but there was this very rich class, about 8% of the people. And, and within that 8%, there was old money, which was handed down generation to generation. They were the senatorial class of people. And then there was some new money, new wealthy people who had, uh, had beco- were becoming wealthy because of, uh, of successful business practices. That was about 8% of the population. And for the most part, the Church of Jesus Christ at that time was not really making many inroads into that class of people. That's why Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to come in to inherit the kingdom of God. Because that rich class, it was very difficult to touch into them. 
The other, there was 90% that were living in abject poverty for the most part. However, if you're doing your math, you'll notice that I've said 90% were poor and 8% were absolutely wealthy. And then there was another 2%. And these were people that were, were classified and called the decurion class of people. They were uh, people who had become wealthy fundamentally by land acquisition. And they had settlements and, and they were fathers of cities and towns. And, and uh, because they were uh, uh, certain wealth, they, they also needed to prop up their wealth by patronage and favoritism and all kinds of things of that nature. They would do things like look at this, the town and they would, they would agree to invest their money on producing a road, providing that someone would put a plaque with their name on it. Kelvin Caulfield built this road. And everybody would, oh, Kelvin, you're so wonderful. We, we love you. Thank you. Um, we have plaques in churches sometimes, though, but I better not get into that topic. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, within this complex uh, system of status, it, with, even within the poor people, where were a whole variety of, of uh, status situations that are, uh, in, in fact, kind of similar to us in some ways. For instance, you, were, you gained various levels of status based on gender, based on age, based on occupation, based on citizenship, based on what city you came from or town you came from. You know, that's why this story was, well, he, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was one of those towns that, like, uh, Nazareth people, they're, they're down there. It was based on whether or not you served in the military, whether you were a rural hick or a city slicker. All of these things had implications for your status. Now, if you were a hick and you didn't have much and you were of some sort of lower status, you could elevate your status by, by linking up with trade unions or or uh, some other kinds of, of group of people, a, a public or a, a public group like maybe the Rotarians can or the Kiwanis or something like that. You could you could get involved in that. And, and by the way, at that time, of course, the church was just in its brand new infancy stages, and so so and there were other religions, of course, and you could you could elevate your status for, by becoming involved in a religious collegium. And the decorian, the people who had wealth, they would throw parties. And they would throw parties and invite all kinds of people to the parties. And, and those people that they thought would be very useful to them, they'd feed really good food and lots of food. And those people that ah, weren't so important, they'd give hardly any food and not, much, not, not the valuable stuff. And that's why Paul was writing, you guys are doing the same thing in the church. You're coming in here, throwing these parties, and you're, you're stuffing yourselves, and you're, you're mistreating other people who don't have much. It's the same thing as what's happening in the world. James is talking about the same thing. Everybody wanted a decurion to show up at church. After all, he would likely repave the parking lot for you as long as you'd give him a plaque. We might be willing to do that. I'm not sure. (laughs) And so James says some dude comes in wearing a gold ring looking like he can benefit the church. And you sit him in the prime place. 
And some, someone comes in looking like a schlunky skateboarder. And I'm, I'm showing my, my, uh, my age. And, and you, you tell him, oh, go stand over there. Or sit at my feet. James says, you have become judges with evil thoughts. I, I want to give you this morning... Uh, three diagnostic questions. But first of all, I want to ask the big question. Is church a creator of social stratification and privilege or a community of compassion, justice, equality, racially, socially, economically? You all know the right answer. But what's the real answer? What have you felt yourself? What does it mean that you can dine at the king's table? (laughs) That the the God of the ages has lowered his standards to benefit you and I. I mean, think about it. Think about what we have just done this morning. Invited by the king of glory, the creator God, to come and gather at a table in his honor. So I got some questions for you this morning. The first is this. It starts out as a statement and then ends in a question. The schlunky will physically get a pretty good seat at Calvary, I I would think, you know? But would they emotionally or socially be sat on the floor? Now, I got to tell you this schlunky word. I've been using it for a while. I I couldn't find it in the dictionary. I don't know where I picked it up, but I I always talk to my kids about that. You look schlunky today. Come on, fix yourself up. Like, it's like it's when you look like an unmade bed. You know what I mean? Get, get yourself fixed up. This is what schlunky is. And I would think, I think we're trained well enough at Calvary on the outside that if somebody schlunky comes in, we would tell them, oh, you know, you could sit wherever you want to. But what about how we're thinking on the inside? Because this is about evil thoughts. This is about the judgment of evil thoughts. What's he really talking about here, James? What's James, what's he getting at? He, if you look at someone, he says, and they come in and they're wearing shabby clothes, he says, here's what you're thinking in your mind. You're thinking, that person is of no value to me. So I'm not going to bother giving them the time of day. Secondly, he says, it, by the very nature of where you ask them to go, is a very, very insulting thing. Here, come and sit on the floor by my feet. Particularly theologically in the church and coming from the Jewish understanding of God and the triumph of God and all that's going to happen. What, what, is, what does Jesus teach us? He's going to do at the end of all time with his enemies. Where's he going to put them? Under his feet. Read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 10. It talks about that. It talks about that in the Old Testament. Until he has made his enemies his footstool, until he has put them under his feet. So in effect, James says, you are so insulting someone who comes in. You are making a value judgment of, of their spiritual caliber on the basis of their shabby clothes. You are assuming that because they are shabby on the outside that they don't have anything spiritually going on in the inside. And you are telling them to take a position as if they are enemies of Jesus Christ. How dare you do that? 
That's judgment with evil thoughts. You are undermining the value that Jesus is putting on that person. Thirdly, he says, not exactly like this, but are you people crazy? Do you not realize that these rich people that you are oogling over are the ones that are hauling you to court? And they have the wherewithal to buy justice for themselves? Are you not aware that these are the people ripping you off in the marketplace? Are you not aware that these are the people who are blaspheming your Lord in public? And you are showing them special favor just because they have money and undermining someone who's shabbily dressed because they apparently don't have any money. You are making status distinctions in the church. And it's evil. In Galatians chapter 3, we get a picture of what the church is all about. You are all sons of God, Galatians 3.26, through faith in Jesus Christ. You are all rich, poor, high society, less high society. You are all Sons of God. Now let that title just sink in and ooze into you. Regardless of what your clothes look like. You are all children of the king of kings. You are princes and princesses. You are a royal priesthood. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, you are priests and kings. All of you. Through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. (laughs) That's not shabby, is it? That ain't schlunky. I hope my kids aren't listening to this because next time I say it to them, they say, We're clothed in Christ, Dad. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, what's he hitting at here? The same thing we're talking about. Age, gender, ethnicity, uh, whether you live in the country or the city. Look at what he's saying here. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. That's status. And it's equal across the board if you are in Christ. That's the teaching here. Favoritism, by the way, attaches the church to all that is wrong with the world system. A system that worships those who appear physically favored and discards or treats with contempt those who have little physical power or resources. It's about worshiping the material. God attaches his highest price tags to souls. Regardless of how they come packaged. A church needs to reflect that value system. By the way, this is not a new concept. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58 talks about the people who were fasting. And they're fasting and saying to the Lord, you haven't granted us any favor. We've been fasting and and we're not getting our prayers answered. Nothing seems to be happening that's good for us. And, And Isaiah 
speaking for God, writes this, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with hungry, with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call on the Lord and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. (laughs) This is not new. Luke writes much of this. And James, who hung around a lot with Jesus, is all about this stuff. Now, um, let me ask you the question, because I notice here with James, he starts out this section by saying, my brothers. In verse 5, he says, listen, my dear brothers. Now, James doesn't step forward and say, do you know who I is? I happen to be, you know, people in the church are saying, who does he think he is? Jesus' brother or something? Well, as a matter of fact. No, he says he addresses them as brothers. Dear brothers. A level playing field. No no special exaggeration of his office. So let me ask you the question then here, of your own life and of our church life. Do riches have any bearing at all on our brotherhood? While you ponder that, keep this in mind, that God himself, he glorifies himself by reversing the effects of sin toward the most affected and afflicted. That's why James says, has not God, verse 5, chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? By so great a salvation. Please don't discard the probabilities or the possibilities of what God is up to in the life of a person who appears disenfranchised. Now, by the way, those who are rich in faith have great needs in life sometimes. So what to do about it? Well, in verse 8, it says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. Here's the deal. Favoritism not only causes you to have the possibility to be, have judgment that is based upon evil thoughts, but James labels it as it is. You have become a sinner. 
I would say that in our congregation, loving is an accepted value of the Calvary Christian community. But does that love really benefit the needy neighbor to the degree we daily benefit ourselves? Because that's what he's really asking here. And by the way, you know, it, it sometimes we, look, we, we encounter things like this and we think favoritism. Well, okay, so maybe I'm into it a little bit. I can't think that God is going to make such a big deal out of it. Okay, so I, I treated a rich person better than I treated a poor person. Okay, so sue me. But you know what James says here? He says, uh, you've become a sinner, and to have committed the one sin makes you a lawbreaker. It makes you responsible for all. And he, and he happens to mention here two specific sins. Murder and adultery. Say, now wait a second. If, if James is going to take me on a journey here now to say that favoritism is just like murder and adultery... I'm going to have trouble with that. Okay, get ready to have some trouble because that's exactly what he's saying. Think about it. What does murder, favoritism, and adultery all have in common? Answer, murder is the choice to get rid of someone to benefit yourself. Adultery is the choice to benefit yourself and disregard the life of someone else's spouse or their children. Favoritism is the choice to benefit yourself over others. That's why James says you're in the same league as a murderer and as an adulterer. It gets pretty heady now, doesn't it? It gets pretty heavy now. We're talking about the church of Jesus Christ and how we treat each other. How we treat different classes of people. And by the way, he says, you have been granted the privilege of living with the royal law. The royal law. You you are children of the king of kings. And the royal law, the, the law that's been decreed from the royal throne room of heaven is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. Jesus preached it in Matthew. James is talking about it here. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. Now, um, you know, I got thinking about this royal law and and God being who he is and all this and and trying to get some sort of idea from, from God's perspective in the throne room of glory as he looks upon our gatherings, looks upon people and, and all of our status stuff and all of our jockeying for status. And I was thinking, how, how, could, you, how could you reflect, how could you illustrate that in ways that, that we could understand and, and think, think about the distance, the gravity, the, the, the sheer lunacy of, the, of all that we're about. And I don't know if this is great, but, but it might give you a little bit of a handle on things. I was thinking about a four-year-old group of guys playing hockey, okay? And, you know, they're, they're, they're playing hockey, and you know how it is. Within the, uh, uh, any given team, there's like, there's like one little four-year-old who thinks, like, I'm all that. Like, you know, hey, 
Like, the team is so fortunate that I showed up today. You know, it's like, because, man, if they didn't have me. And then there's all these other guys on the team. They're all jockeying around, looking at each other, saying, well, I'm better than him. And, and, and everybody's like that. And then, and then there's Wayne Gretzky, like, staring at this thing. Uh, let's upgrade that. Bobby Orr staring at this thing. <laughs> I lost my mind there for a second. Staring at this little illustration, and, and he's looking at these four-year-olds thinking they're all that. Like, look at us, we, you know, we're, what we're doing, and we're so cool, and I'm so much better than that four-year-old and all this. And it's like, compared to who? And when we start thinking about the whole status deal, compared to the Lord, creator of glory, <laughs> the, the ultimate, I mean, our, our little distinction, Distinctness is laughable. It's, it's ridiculous. Who do we think we are? We, we come in here and we think, hey, it's a good job I showed up at church today because this place couldn't possibly function without me. No, James says. You are people who are to practice the royal law. Treat each other. Love each other. Love your neighbor as, keyword, yourself. Of course, the automatic question is, who's my neighbor? That was asked of Jesus, right? The whole story of the Good Samaritan. Here's your neighbor. If you haven't read the story of the Good Samaritan, you've got to read Luke chapter 10. Check it out there. The, the, the neighbor is whoever you encounter on the way who has a need that you can meet even if you have to cross the road. That's your neighbor. So let me ask you, when was the last time you noticed a neighbor's need and benefited him to the degree you benefit yourself when you notice your own need? Who is the neighbor that you can bless by some of the standard of your living? It gets ouchy when James starts talking about rich and poor, doesn't it? The um, interesting thing is as we transition into the final diagnostic question this morning. The um, expert in the law comes to Jesus and says, Who's... Who's the neighbor? And you know how Jesus answered it? He said, the man who showed mercy was the neighbor to him. It shouldn't surprise us that James, in the last two verses of this section, launches into the issue of mercy, connecting it to favoritism. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Isn't that an amazing thing? When we think of law, we think of it boxing us in or fencing us in or creating boundaries for us. But that's not what God does. The perfect law of God gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me just points out something here. I think we probably believe in mercy at Calvary. Pastor Ken, do we believe in mercy at Calvary? Ken's our specialist in mercy. He's our mercy pastor. 
We believe in mercy here at Calvary. But sometimes I wonder if we maybe believe in judgment more. Here's what sometimes happens. We, we want to lay, layer over top of the need and our help all kinds of judgments. It goes something like this. The Samaritan. Well, before I help him out, I need to have a few questions answered. Like, what in the world was he thinking? Traveling on the road to Jericho. Everybody knows that's a dangerous road. Like, why before he left didn't he pick up a CAA membership? I mean, why should I help him out because he's stupid, that he didn't get some sort of insurance on this thing? I don't understand. What does he expect? Why should I be helping him? Why should I be bailing him out? Maybe he should have thought of a health insurance plan. Maybe he should have had some provisions. Maybe he shouldn't have forgotten his cell phone. And so we judge away our opportunity to be merciful. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ didn't argue his way out of being merciful to us? Do you not think that he has a whole lot on us? Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they think of that? Why did they go that way? No, Jesus welcomes us. Turn from your sin and come to Jesus. The atonement, what Christ has done for us, the sacrifice on Calvary, turned away God's wrath. And and mercy turns away condemnation. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. The mercy of God brings an end to the judgment of God. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Those who are truly belonging to Jesus benefit others with what they themselves have. That's how it works. So let me ask you, do you specialize in helping people find freedom from what ails them or in reminders only of what's wrong with them? Because let me tell you something. From what I read here, that's how you are being judged by God. If by mercy you help people find their way out of the mess, then by mercy you are being judged yourself. Is there anybody in here who doesn't need mercy from God? The merciful swallow up merciless judgment by mercy. It's an amazing thing. So let me wrap this up. And then we're going to pray. And then we're going to do some business with God personally. Here's how I would write this, summarizing it. My dear brothers, if I were writing you a letter. Genuine Christian faith, big real, has to go past the window dressing of cosmetic care and social toleration. 
to the royal law of equally benefiting one another so that mercy triumphs over our natural tendencies through the judgmentalism of racial favoritism, social discrimination, and financial privilege. When Zacchaeus was converted to Jesus Christ, the first thing he did, the very first thing he did, was a big, big act of mercy. He took out his wallet and he said to the Lord, half of what I have is going to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody in business, I'm going to recompense them four times what I've cheated them. Jesus responds, today salvation has come to this house. You know what that means? Some of us are maybe going to have to dig into our wallets and give some money away. It means that some of us are going to have to be willing to make a really risky loan. I hope Dave Ramsey's not listening. Some of us are going to have to write off some bad loans and just forgive them. I'm not making this up. And regardless of what Dave Ramsey says, I think you care more about what Jesus says. So let me read to you what he does say in Luke chapter 6. And then we're going to pray. And I'm going to give you some instructions. In Luke chapter 6, verse, starting at um, verse 30. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Now listen. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment... What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. How much more should we treat our brothers and sisters? Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Lord, that's a pretty powerful concluding statement that you have made. Same one that James makes. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, Father, we know that you've called us to something that's far more sacrificial than at what we first thought. We know, Lord, that you've called us to, to, to walk the Calvary road. It's a different road. Lord, we know, particularly in the church of Jesus Christ, there must be no favoritism. Rich and poor, 
high society disenfranchised. Gender, nationality, occupation, citizenship, none of that has any bearing. Only faith in Christ puts us all in the family, the same family, the royal family, under the royal law of treating our neighbors as herself. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts a transforming work in this area that the people in Durham region who are disenfranchised, discriminated against, hurting, might actually believe that we would help them and would therefore actually believe that God would help them and would turn to you, I pray. And Lord, uh, please, please, help us to treat our brothers and sisters as just that. King's kids in a royal family, not deserving any of the least of your favor, but granted your amazing grace anyway. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I want you to do. Just spend a few moments alone with God, you and God. You have notes in the bulletin. You have a piece of paper. You have a pencil in front of you. And, and I, I want to just put this to you this morning before you rush out of here and, and don't put any thought into this. Maybe you've had some evil thoughts in the sense that, well, on the outside you are treating people all equally, but on the inside you bristle. You have thoughts when you see somebody look shabby or whatever. You judge their heart. Ask the Lord to show that to you this morning and, and write down, I... Lord, I need to change my attitude about how I view people. Lord, help me to do that. Just jot that down. God puts that in your heart. Or, or maybe there's been people you could help and you haven't helped. There's been somebody on the way and you've just, I don't want to cross the street. Lord, is there anybody I need to, to work on? And, and Lord, incline my life to that. Please incline my life to that. By the way, you won't have to go digging deeply for this stuff. If it's there, the Holy Spirit will just drag this right to the surface right now. And and the other thing, have, have you been withholding mercy? Because you've got layers of judgment. You want to lecture everybody? Lord, give me a merciful heart. Give me a heart like yours. As... Carol plays here. Um, don't rush out of here. Don't rush out of here noisily if you do rush out of here. Just, just take a few minutes and pause before God and let him work in your life. And then when you're satisfied that he, you've had some time with him and you've had some counsel with the Lord, then make your way quietly to the back. 